welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. This is episode 14 of the Amor Mundi podcast and the final episode of a three-part series taken from the Hannah Arendt Center special webinar entitled Revitalizing Democracy. The webinar was held virtually in October 2020 and featured Roger Berkowitz in conversation with Peter McLeod. My name is Roger Berkowitz again from the Hannah Arendt Center here at Bard College. I hope you're enjoying this fascinating discussion and webinar on citizen assemblies, sortition, and spaces of freedom and how to revitalize democracy. We're going to move on to our afternoon session now. There's one unfortunate change. Selena Thompson, who was one of our speakers, uh, an artist who's brought sortition into the art world and done some fascinating work along that, has had, unfortunately, a medical issue and can't join us today. So we're going to have our other esteemed speaker, Peter McLeod, speak a little longer and take maybe a couple of questions and then break into breakout sessions. One will be Peter with our moderators, who I'll speak about at the end, and the other will be David Van Raybrook, who was generously offered to step in and, and be in the other breakout room. So let me quickly introduce uh, our first guest. Peter McLeod is the founder and principal of Mass LBP. He founded it more than 10 years ago, and it's one of Canada's leading, he's one of Canada's leading experts in public engagement and deliberative democracy. He's chaired more than 30 citizen assemblies of types. So he's, I think, probably got as much experience doing this as almost anyone out there. Well, I mean, James Fishkin may, may give you a run for your money, but we can talk about maybe even what the difference between deliberative polling and citizen assemblies are. One thing I'll, I'll mention, he writes and speaks about citizens' experience of the state and the importance of public imagination and a future responsible government. One thing that I think is very interesting is that for a whole bunch of reasons that he was explaining to me, Mass LBP is a for-profit corporation in the public trust. And that may be something that people want to talk about of why we ch he chose to do that. But uh, I've been a fan of his work and what they do for a long time. Nice to meet you, Peter. And thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Roger. It's, it's a delight to be able to, uh, to join this uh, special session this afternoon. I'm going to take a moment. I'm just going to uh, pull up my slides that I'll be sharing with everyone and just want to make sure what you can see in front of you now is a white title card. What I'm going to try and do over the course of these 15 or 20 minutes is um, share a little story, I guess, from, from Canada. You know, I observed that you very uh, sensibly put a Canadian following my European uh, compatriots. A friend of mine used to say that Canada is a little bit like European software running on North American hardware. And so as I think many of your viewers this afternoon are thinking about the implications of this work and these examples uh, to your own context in the US, I, I hope that what I'm able to share from Canada can be, can be helpful. I think there's a tendency in North America to look at the excellent work happening in Europe and to say, well, that's because it's Europe. One of the points that I wanna make, however, about our work in Canada and about this deliberative project more broadly is that while I think innovation is important, 
we're actually beyond the sort of light bulb stage of this movement. And what matters now, what I believe is perhaps as important as innovation is repetition, seeing that these aren't one-offs. The second point that I wanna make is to actually try and delineate a little bit between three different deliberative projects that I think are all part and parcel of what has come to be referred to as the deliberative wave. Lastly, I wanna set this work in a sort of wider context that I'm calling democracy's second act. And I think David earlier this morning had a lovely turn of phrase about how these kinds of processes can be relational therapy for the body politic. You know, in part, it's because we are extending the privilege of representation to others. But, you know, we have to remember that Charles Taylor writes as much about this importance of recognition. And I think these processes at their core afford far more people a much greater degree of recognition than is often available through our everyday practices of democratic life. So just to get into it, I mean, Roger, as, as you observed, Mass has been around for a little more than a decade. And they mentioned earlier today that many of these modern citizens assemblies really can be traced back to two breakout experiences that occurred in Canada in 2004 and 2006. These were the BC and Ontario Citizens Assemblies on electoral reform. The thing is that, that since that time, two processes which failed to achieve the, the recommendations to modernize our electoral system, we have nevertheless managed to work at a different political level to try and take these same principles, to popularize them and make them part of Canada political culture. So since those original assemblies, there have been 38, what we've come to call reference panels and citizens assemblies, uh, involving about 1400 Canadians, all of whom volunteers, all of whom selected through a civic lottery, a term we use for sortition, it's a bit more user friendly. And at this point, about one in 38 Canadian households has received an invitation just like what David was describing with various processes and Helen has described with respect to France, inviting them to serve on a municipal, a provincial or a national deliberative process. So, you know, this is a photograph from 2006 where it began in Ontario, the Citizens Assembly on Electoral Reform. Uh, more than 104 Ontarians, half men, half women volunteering a little more than six months of their time on weekends, traveling from a province that is um, about the size of France and Spain together, and uh, convening at York University uh, in their law school, learning about a very complex topic and ultimately making a series of recommendations. Now, when this process occurred in BC, it went to referendum, 58% of the public actually voted for change. But the government of the day had set a supermajority threshold of 60%, which is why the reform never occurred and it's, it's considered then to have failed. I can assure you that Canadians like Americans have never voted 58% for anything previously, much less 60%. And so I think not unreasonably, 
Many critics have said that it was an unreasonably high bar. The challenge for those who had been a part of these two processes, and I was attached to the Ontario Assembly, was that we had seen a kind of rip in time, a glimpse of a different political future. But with the two referenda having failed, I can assure you there was very little political appetite to spend the millions of dollars to mount a kind of national exercise of the sort we've seen in Ireland and France. So the question was, how do we keep it going? And we answered that question by going really back to the core elements of any long form deliberative process, that there needs to be a specific mandate that comes from government, but it doesn't need to be a national government. Secondly, there needs to be a, a very rigorous and def a defensible selection process, the civic lottery, the random stratified sample that David has described. And then there actually has to be enough time to do the deliberative work. And there has to be a thoughtful curriculum that brings together citizens and experts to have a profitable dialogue. Well, we took those principles and we scaled things back, often bringing together citizens for four to six Saturdays rather than 10 to 20 Saturdays, typically working with groups of 36 two citizens rather than a hundred or more. And rather than waiting for an invitation from political leaders, instead cultivating a clientele amongst senior public servants, as well as some municipal leaders as well. What that has allowed us to do is run thorough deliberative processes that have done everything from inform the development of Canada's forthcoming policies on national pharmacare, create a two-year standing panel for the City of Toronto that weighs in on major planning policies. I think everybody's familiar with the challenges of municipal public consultation, the nimbyism that often influences land use and other municipal decisions. If you fly into, hopefully before very long, again, Toronto Pearson Airport, the third largest airport in North America, uh, its flight patterns and time of day arrivals and departures have been influenced by a randomly selected cohort of citizens who live in the jurisdiction surrounding that airport and, of course, are disproportionately impacted. Ontario, a population of 16 million people, its legislation with respect to the governance of condominiums uh, has been uh, established by a citizens' assembly or reference panel. So here's a list of, of all of the issues, or rather some of the, the 38 issues that have been tackled uh, over the course of the past decade. And, and this is what I mean that repetition has been for us the key to popularizing, refining, and ultimately embedding this as part of our political culture. And most recently, uh, in the midst of COVID, we are uh, holding the first of three year-long national citizens' assemblies on democratic expression with the focus of now regulating social media. In our first year, we didn't see members of the assembly uh, meeting just this past week all across the country. So we're working across six time zones. We're working in two official languages, French and English, uh, and we have 42 members who will be uh, serving on this process for a period of about six months. So. 
My American cousins, of course, will be well familiar with the Thomas Edison quote that innovation is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. I want to credit all of the people doing this work with more than 1% of, of thoughtfulness and creativity. But I do want to emphasize that, that really we're deep into the 99% part of this equation right now. We're deep into different approaches and efforts to embed this work and bring it into the political mainstream. And for me, you know, I think there is a risk of making citizen deliberation, citizens assemblies, perhaps a bit too exotic. Rather, we should be focusing on the, the core work of these processes by considering how they can be connected with broader public sector organizations thinking more rigorously about how we frame deliberative tasks, how we appropriately develop curriculum that won't uh, introduce bias, that has at its core an, an adult ed pedagogy of meeting people where they're at and seeing that people are sufficiently equipped and informed in order to be able to get up to speed on what are often very complex tasks how we work to widen participation beyond the 40 or 100 people who get to be selected. And I think most critically, how we wire these processes into our political cycles. So it becomes a norm or expectation that within any four year elected mandate, a government will be holding uh, multiple assemblies on major issues of the day. Now, what I'd like to try and, and do with the, the time I have remaining is, is just to talk a little bit more about this deliberative way. For any of the viewers this afternoon who haven't yet seen the tremendous report from the OECD uh, called Catching the Deliberative Wave, I urge you to, to download it. It's freely available as a PDF. And it demonstrates how there have been more than 300 long-form deliberative processes that have taken place around the world beginning in the 1980s and really picking up steam since 2010. But I think it's important to differentiate between some of the drivers uh, within this way. And I, I want to suggest a very modest typology. The projects that have been described already today cross each of these three. So let's just tease them apart a little bit. You know, what we've seen in Ireland has not been an example of, of civic innovation. The ability of the citizens' assemblies in Ireland to ultimately recommend reforms to that country's restrictions on reproductive choice and access to abortion uh, and legalizing same-sex marriage largely codified a silent majority and provided an extra parliamentary mechanism that allowed partisan politicians who for their own reasons found themselves at an impasse to be able to point to an external source of legitimacy and move ahead. So I think there's great utility in using these processes to deal with these almost constitutional or quasi-constitutional issues. And I'd argue that the French National Assembly or Convention on Climate Change is probably within this category, an above the fold, high politics, high stakes endeavor. The challenge, however, is that the spotlight shines awfully bright on these projects and their success or failure has major ramifications for the larger project of trying to popularize deliberative processes writ large. The second is the parliamentary 
uh, strategy. And I think this is best represented by the extraordinary precedents being set in Belgium. The wiring of a Sartitian-based body into the parliamentary apparatus. And, and this is serving the important democratic project of greater parliamentary and democratic reform. Our slice uh, of this puzzle has been to really focus on the thousands of critical regulatory issues, um, the everyday work of government that itself needs a, a source of legitimacy where often standard approaches to public consultation are understood to be truly inadequate and that governments have to take tough decisions on these complex issues. And for me, the appeal of the, the kind of regulatory project within the deliberative way is the fact that it allows us to get to scale, not by creating larger and larger and larger assemblies, but rather more and more and more assemblies working with public agencies and working at the different levels of the state. Fundamentally, however, each of these projects has to overcome what is this standing bias, something that Hannah Arendt understood so well of liberal democracy, which is that it perceives the public as a risk to be managed rather than a resource to be tapped. I think these processes pay a democratic dividend because they work to not only draw from the citizenry, but they work to replenish the citizenry. They replenish that resource. And that the big shift that I think each of us in our different ways is trying to achieve and overcome is dealing with this dominant belief that a public can't be trusted, that it needs to be managed. This is a world of the new public management, of public relations, and so many of the things that erode public trust in government. And that's why I want to conclude by, by just talking a little bit about what I've started to refer to as democracy's second act. You know, at the core of this work around citizens assembly is a fundamental question as to whether you have confidence in people, whether you trust people, uh, as David does so clearly when he says he welcomes the person throwing trash in his neighbor's yard. The project of democracy for the better part of the past 200 years has been at its core a project of the franchise. You know, we have spent the better part of two centuries ensuring that all adults in mature democracies have the vote. And in Canada, that, that is a project that continued right until the 90s as we were enfranchising small elements of the public that had been neglected. And of course, there's still a broader project around the enfranchisement of teens and children. Every debate about the franchise has always been a debate about capability. It's always been a debate about confidence in others to participate effectively. And we have only managed to secure that franchise by overcoming elitism. The claims that there is something special about those in power that makes them uniquely capable of exercising it. I think democracy's second act 
picks up on this very same project and works to build a second franchise. And the basis of that question is to ask, how do we share now the privilege and responsibility of representing others beyond the several hundred people who sit in our parliaments and legislatures? How do we make this a popular exercise where a high share of a population has the opportunity in Daniel Yankelevich's during phrase to exercise public judgment? And so if we now have largely settled the question that 80% or so of a society's citizens should have the right to vote, I think it's incumbent on us to ask, well, what share of a population should have the opportunity to serve in an intensive, episodic democratic process? Not join a political party full-time, although we hope more will, not be a full-time member of a civil society group as you know, has been encouraged to us by Robert Putnam and others. This is necessary and important, but surely a future democratic society will recognize the value of including all citizens in the representative function so that they have the opportunity to cultivate the empathic relations with one another and appreciate the complexity and as David said earlier this morning, quoting the stones, that sadly, one of the parts of being an adult living in a democratic society is not always getting what you want. But participating more actively is something that I, I think we all need. And, and on the last note, it's why this spring we launched something called Game Changer. It's a call to create a democratic action fund for Canada be a, a federal fund that would cost approximately five to 10% of what we spend on our quadrennial national elections. It would be matching money that municipalities or provincial state level governments and federal departments could access in order to be able to hold uh, deliberative processes and really wire it into our policymaking culture. Throughout all of this work, we've seen that people want a say, they'll clamor for a say, but they're also willing to serve. And fundamentally, the project of citizens' assemblies is about creating more seats at the table where people have the occasion to do just that. Turns out that apathy has always been a distraction and that the problem isn't that we ask too much of people. Our challenge in modern democracies is that we've been asking far too little. I'll stop there. Peter, thank you so much. That was great. I can't thank you enough. For those who are missed the introduction, just quickly, Selena Thompson was supposed to join us now and unfortunately has a, a medical issue and, and can't. Uh, we wish her well. Um, so I'm going to ask one or two questions for Peter, and then we're going to work into the breakout rooms. One thing that you said that really resonates with me, Peter, is, is that people want to serve, right? And and one of Hannah Arendt's real critiques of electoral representative democracy is she says that it outsources the job of governing from the people to uh, a small group of elites, often bureaucratic elites. And yet she, she says that the incentives of all democracies are to move in that direction because over time, what people have shown is that they would rather spend their time accumulating money or pursuing their private interests rather than pursuing their public interests. I guess, 
you know, you said people are willing to serve. Obviously, um, you know, we saw in France and Belgium and other places, that's the case. One of the things that I just want to point out is all four speakers we had invited to speak today. In fact, all eight speakers we invited to speak today, none of them are American. That wasn't necessarily intentional. Uh, it's the fact that for whatever reason, the United States is way behind the curve from Canada and a European and a perspective on this question of citizen assembly. So I'm wondering, you know, we're in an emergency now, people are willing to serve. How confident are you that people, you know, we can barely get people to serve on jury duty in this country. People try and get out of it all the time. And right. if you give people that option out, you know, you're, the busy people aren't going to do it. You know, how do you deal with that issue? All right. Well, first of all, I, I need to give uh, some credit to some of my American colleagues. You know, John Gastel, for instance, has been doing tremendous work uh, for a very long time. The Oregon Citizen uh, Initiative Review a very critical contribution to this work globally. Uh, organization I can recommend, Healthy Democracy is working at a municipal level. And of course, there's the Jefferson Center, um, which was an early popularizer of these citizen panels and, and continues to work. So just out of, out of fairness to them, I, I, I should credit my American colleagues. To your point about jury duty, there's, there's kind of a human um, design factors piece of this as well, right? Uh, for those who served on, on juries, I think you know you're not treated especially well. It's a bit of a cattle call to show up. Yeah. Uh, you, are not, you are not treated as though you are an essential and integral part of the judicial process. You're an input from which is then expected an output. And I think if we treated jurors the way we treat magistrates and the way that we treat elected representatives, then I think it would do a lot to elevate the experience and likely uh, increased participation. I think it's appalling uh, that we don't afford people the visceral respect that they're due when they're performing such a public function. You know, I thought it was maybe on the tip of your tongue to this, I, this idea. I think George Bernard Shaw, the problem with socialism is too many meetings. And, you know, why is it that you would volunteered to give of your time. And, and this goes to both Putnam's and Theta Scotch Paul's work about the decline of participation in civil society. There's no question that our lives have become uh, faster paced, our commitments are varied, our experience of one another is increasingly mediated, and the nature of uh, social participation has changed. We should recall that you know political parties were at their zenith when they were also social clubs, right? And labor was at its zenith when it was as much a social function as it was a political and economic one. We have lost that. Political parties have become incredibly mono-functional, believing that the only thing a person has to contribute is to dial for dollars or pound in signs and, and knock doors. And from our experience, sending out all of these letters, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. It's not that people want to belong to something for years at a time. It's not that they want to, they're, they're seeking some sort of standing commitment, but they are prepared to engage very intensively, very occasionally, if they believe that their time and energy has a chance of making a difference. I think people are smart. I think they have a really good sense of the value of their time. I think they can smell a fake, but when there's something real on offer, they will step up. And I think if you design to those parameters, 
uh, then you won't find yourself surprised. Fantastic. We are now at 1.30, uh, which is the end. Of, well, not the end, because um, I'm going to ask Joe Feldman, who has been from Total uh, Broadcasting, has been helping us today to now put into your webinar browser links such a way that you can now pick which breakout room you can go into. So first, I want to thank Peter for, for an amazing talk. We've had over 352 people watching today and over uh, 200 cities. It's great. I want to thank the team at the Han Aaron Center, Tina Stanton and Craig Rothstein, and everyone at BARD uh, who's helped put this amazing webinar together. I want to thank all our speakers today, Elena Landemore, David Van Raybrook, and Peter McLeod, and look forward to uh, having you guys get a chance to discuss and hear and be in conversation with our speakers. Thank you guys very much. We hope you have enjoyed the final part of our three-part series, Revitalizing Democracy with Peter McLeod. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.